0: but i stay when you're lost and i'm scared and you're turning
1: away Welcome to What She Said on 1059 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. We are quickly approaching Blue Monday, often referred to as the most depressing day of the year. So, before we kick off today's show, let me give you a little bit of hope. Since winter solstice, our days have been getting longer by an average of two minutes and seven seconds every day. And we're less than a month away now from clocks springing forward. In other words, you've almost made it through another Canadian winter sister. So let's look at what's coming up on today's show. It's no secret that women in media are often subjected to criticism about their looks that their male counterparts rarely hear. It's 2023 and this needs to stop. My first guest today is an award-winning journalist with over two decades of experience in the industry, and while we should be celebrating that part of the story, we're not. Despite all of Tess Van Stratton's hard work committed to her craft, she is often subjected to comments about her appearance that diminish and detract from her achievements, as she was recently when someone wrote a letter criticizing her sleeveless dress that she wore on air. She joins me today to discuss her viral story. 2023 is the year we shift out of languishing and into post-traumatic growth. Candy Ho, board chair of CIRIC, the only charitable organization of its kind in Canada focused on career development, education, and research, joins me today to discuss insights on how to navigate the current workplace and workforce realities in addition to resources available for those looking to build purposeful careers after nearly three years of disruption. Anne Brody is here with Entertainment, and this week we take a look at Living, starring the absolutely wonderful Bill Nighy in the story of an ordinary man reduced by years of oppressive office routine to a shadow existence, who at the 11th hour makes a supreme effort to turn his dull life into something wonderful. Plus After Sun* from writer-director Charlotte Wells, which dominated the Toronto Film Critics Association Awards this year. For years, nurses across the country have been sounding the alarm about the impact that staffing shortages are having on patient care. Yet, those warning calls have continually gone unanswered. Ontario, in particular, is facing a full-blown health care crisis, and nurses have reached a breaking point. To add insult to injury, internal documents by the Ministry of Health were released this week through the Freedom of Information Act, and it shows the Ontario government knew that passing Bill 124 would worsen the province's health care staffing crisis. Diane Martin from WE RPN joins me to discuss. Finally, finances are a top concern for most Canadians right now, so Stephanie Chabot from the Finance Diaries is here with some tips for riding out the storm. Stephanie believes that by being able to openly discuss finance topics, we can understand them better, avoid mistakes others have made, feel more empowered, and make better decisions. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on
2: 1059
0: The Region.
1: My first guest today is an award-winning journalist with over two decades of experience in the industry. She began her career as a reporter on Parliament Hill before working as a journalist and anchor at various stations across the country. During her career, she has interviewed several prime ministers, covered stories of national interest, and had her reports air on major news networks globally. Yet today, we're not talking about any of that because women in positions like Tess Van Stratton often see their hard work and commitment to their craft reduced to comments about appearance that diminish and detract from their achievements. Tess recently came forward to speak out against the unfair personal attacks on women's appearances that are all too common for women in media. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Tess.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: I think we need to set this up for my listeners. So what inspired you to speak out against the personal attacks on women's appearances in media?
0: Well, on New Year's Day, we got an email to the entire newsroom. And I done I do the weather for Czech News. So I done the weather on New Year's Eve. Thought I looked really nice in this, you know, tailored work dress that was lovely. Um, but apparently not, because a viewer emailed in to say how inappropriate it was for me to show my arms on television, um, especially in winter and that how I looked was, quote, almost upsetting, which was the funniest part of the whole thing.
1: It's insane to me, though, that you you deal with this, but this is not the first time, right?
0: No, and that's why I decided to tweet it, and that's pretty benign as, as a lot of these emails go. I You know, colleagues have had emails saying um, they really should wear black because they'll look slimmer and those horizontal stripes aren't doing anything for them. Um, they've had emails that their hair is terrible, their cleavage is you know, how dare they show any cleavage at all. And we're talking a very appropriate worktop, not, you know, cleavage, cleavage, that sort of thing. Um, another anchor had an email saying she needed to eat some cheeseburgers because she's too skinny. So people feel like they can criticize our weight, our hair, our makeup, our wardrobe choices. But would you go up to a total stranger on the street and be like, oh, God, that looks terrible. How dare you wear that and cover your arms up? How dare you show your arms? I mean, it's lucky they couldn't see my ankles in the, the shot we had, because who knows what would have happened if my ankles were showing.
1: And I hate to, you know, say that this would be a one-off. I mean, I wish I could say this was a one-off, but it's not. It happens all the time to women in media. So what steps should we be taking to address this? And what is there a role that the media company, uh, that is the employer, plays in this, perhaps?
0: Well, in this case, I've had lots of support from my employer Um, In the past, I've been doing this, as you mentioned, for over 20 years. And in the past, it was just ignore it, ignore it. Just don't respond. Don't give it any fuel. And some of the comments online, my tweet has now had over 750,000 views. I'm getting emails from all over the world from people with support. Some of the comments, and it's a very small minority, are just let it go and, you know, don't give trolls any fuel. But I've learned this. It's getting worse. It's definitely worse than when I started out. And I would have thought things would be better now than they were 20 plus years ago. But they're not in terms of judging women on their appearance and being critical of women's appearance and trying to tell them how they should look. Um, so that's why I tweeted about it. It's not just journalists. It's also female politicians. After this, I have had lots of female politicians reach out to me. To, to share some of the horrible messages they get, not on the job they're doing, not on their politics, about how dare you wear those boots and you looked ridiculous and your hair is a disaster, and just awful things that you would never actually say to a real person in person. So I'm not sure why we think it's okay to say it through emails. People will phone newsrooms. Um, and now it's obviously with social media, it's so much easier to leverage out this criticism which it's certainly gotten worse since social media. So I I think other than stations can support their employees, which mine has. There were news anchors in Vancouver and Calgary who got attacked because they were pregnant on air. How dare they show a pregnant body on air? Newsflash, you know, women get pregnant. Women have
1: arms. 2023.
0: Yeah, it's 2023. Like enough already. This is ridiculous. And the really disheartening part is it's usually other women who send in these attacks and critical emails.
1: This is really where I want to I wanted to focus on that for a second if I could because and I I am not throwing shade I'm not trying to you know pick on men but you know we can almost not forgive men but we understand that sometimes it comes from them but it it seems to hurt more when these attacks come from women.
0: I think it hurts more when they come from women because as a woman you know what it's like right to make your way in this world and to have to fight sexism and have to in some cases, for some positions, claw your way up to a, a rightful position and work harder and worry about how you look, right? My partner never worries at what he looks like. You know, sometimes I'll be like, oh honey, like you really need, you can't wear that. But he doesn't even think of it because no one would ever say that to him other than his family. And that's really how it should be. My boss, okay, if I'm wearing something you don't think's appropriate, sure, my boss can say something or my producer, my family, my kids are all too up. Uh, keen to tell me if I, I look silly. But they, when this blew up, they were like, no, we're the only ones who get to criticize your outfit.
1: First off, I commend your bravery for coming forward with your story, because like you said, it is a hard time to be out in the public eye as a woman right now. These attacks are getting worse. Uh, but on a personal level, we often really internalize these messages and they eat away at us. Do you have any advice for women in dealing with these types of attacks
0: Well, I definitely had to develop thicker skin. Um, Starting out, I would cry. And I I work with younger women who they'll get these messages and it's upsetting, right? It's attacking you personally. It's not the job you're doing, or you didn't like the story, or I got the forecast wrong, or we made a mistake. It's not that, or why are you covering this? That's all fair criticism. No, it's personally attacking how you look and how you are in the world, right? So that's gonna hurt. in this case, this didn't hurt my feelings because it, it I've got to the point where you just have to have that thicker skin and then I actually got a little bit angry because I thought this is ridiculous. Why are we still talking about this and especially telling someone they need to cover up? Um, you know, I wasn't dressed for a night at the club. Like it's a very conservative work dress that you would see a politician in the House of Commons wearing, right? <laughs> it's not like it was an inappropriate outfit. But my whole career I've I've tried to play it safe and worn things that won't get emails um, i i keep a wardrobe calendar which a lot of people find surprising i have a little month by month calendar i write down what i wear make sure i rotate outfits and i never wear the same thing in at least a month try to mix up colors if i wear a blazer this day i'll wear a dress the next day just because otherwise you will get emails and and that's the sad thing i think i hope what comes of this is people think twice and and it really i have to say women i think most men watching They'll be like, oh, that's an ugly dress. And, and then listen to your forecast, right? <laughs> They're not going to email in or phone in the station to, to voice that criticism. But I think as women, and I do think often it's women who, who have been pushed down who do this, women who have been hurt, women who do have self-esteem issues, lash out at other women, not just public women, but maybe their friends or maybe acquaintances, because somehow by hurting someone else, they think they'll feel better. But you never feel better by hurting somebody else.
1: I'm curious, you you went public with this one, but did do you reply to these emails ever or do you just delete and ignore?
0: So we are, our, our poli- it's not an official policy, but we've been encouraged to reply to people. Um, and often when you reply to someone, they realize, oh, this is, there's actually another person. This is a real person. They sort of send them to the newsroom general email thinking you won't see it or someone will nicely tell you. Um, but no, we all get these emails. So then it's your colleagues They'll see the email. It's almost like a public shaming. So I do try to reply. This one I didn't reply to because uh, I let our community relations department reply. I wasn't really even sure what to say. You know, if some some you can address the point they've raised. What do you say? I'm sorry you didn't like my dress. I'm, I'm sorry you thought I was inappropriate. I'm sorry I was almost upsetting, whatever that means.
1: I, I like that though you said that you know your your de- uh, department answered for you. Uh, do you think it would have been better for you if that email had been filtered out and not sent to you at all, and they just dealt with it?
0: It's hard to say because maybe, but also, so then if they just dealt with it, then that one lady, because it was a woman who sent this, she might think twice next time. Hopefully, right? If you get an email back going, this is really inappropriate. Personal attacks on women's appearance is not okay. But then I think the broader conversation, this is open, that a lot of people didn't even realize this was happening. I've been flooded with emails and comments, and our viewers have been amazing. And people from all over the world are emailing lovely messages of support. And thank you for talking about this. And thank you for standing up for women. So I'm glad this happened. I had no idea this would happen. I'm completely blown away. I did not have going viral on my 2023 bingo card,
1: but I'm glad it happened. I think it's incredible. And I do commend you for coming forward on this story. It's really important that we keep pushing back on this narrative. Uh, Tess, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I want people to obviously now be able to keep up with you. Uh, So where can they find you?
0: I'm on Twitter at Tess Van Stratton um, and on Instagram at Tess Van Stratton as well. My last name has two A's in it. So V-A-N-S-T-R-A-T-E-N. And then I'm also on Facebook at Tess Van Stratton. Check, which is C H E K, the station I work for.
1: Incredible. Tess, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. We'll have you back on again soon.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. You You
3: better
1: as we enter 2023, many of us are still feeling the effects of the pandemic and the term languishing coined by Wharton professor and bestselling author Adam Grant has become part of our lexicon. Languishing is that joyless, aimless feeling that many of us have experienced during the pandemic however according to grant there is now a new mindset emerging a more positive and energetic one known as post-traumatic growth this mindset is not just about bouncing back but bouncing forward if you're looking for ways to harness this growth mindset to accelerate or reshape your career then you're in the right place. Joining us today is Candy Ho, board chair of CIRIC, the only charitable organization of its kind in Canada that is focused on career development, education, and research with a national network of career experts. Candy is also an assistant professor of careers at the University of the Fraser Valley. She joins me today to share insights on how to navigate the current workplace and workforce realities. Welcome to what she said, Candy. Thanks for having me, Candice. Let's maybe recap how the pandemic has affected the current workplace and workforce realities.
4: Oh man, uh, lots have happened in the last three years, and um, I'm sure folks can remember, you know, that that sharp moment in March 2020. Uh, when our when our lives shut down, we're not allowed to, um, you know, socialize physically. Uh, work needed to change to pivot to online. Um, for those who have, have kids, you know, things also move online. And not to mention, um, we become caretakers of uh, family members who might have contracted COVID, contracted COVID ourselves. So, um, you know, it's, it's safe to say that our, our lives have changed uh forever as a result of uh of covid and we're still 3 years in the, the pandemic is still here so I, I would say in the last couple of years we would have have to manage and kind of adjust expectations um you know live live with you know cancellations um and and but also you know what you said in the introduction the post traumatic growth and think about how can we make the best out of the situation given the, um, the assets, the skills, the experience that we have. So lots of mixed emotions here that we could unpack today.
1: And there's still really a lot of confusion. Uh, you know, I'm seeing it every day. It's sort of people are on hybrid schedule. Other businesses want a return to office. Are you hearing about that sort of uh,
4: push-pull for people when it comes to their careers and jobs? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Certainly. Uh, A little bit here and there. And I think there are some companies that have leveraged COVID as an opportunity to say, we're going to sell a physical space and move everybody online. And they've done well for themselves in the last couple of years. And they see themselves continuing that way with a combination of uh, renting out space for occasional gatherings. Uh, I've also seen some company where they they go back and forth and they negotiate with their employees to say what works for you in your specific circumstance, uh, such as the, the role, the job that you're in, family circumstance, life circumstances, for for, for instance. Uh, and then there are companies that that kind of mandate due to maybe the nature of their work, employer expectation to say, uh, I want people to be coming into work a couple of days a week or entirely back here full time. And we have a plan to to come back, you know, uh, COVID sickly, for example.
1: I'm really loving this term post-traumatic growth. I love that. It's like the, the rain clouds are starting to clear. We're starting to use the skills and the resilience we built during the pandemic to find new ways. How are you seeing people move forward with this post-traumatic growth? How would you describe it?
4: Mm-hmm. Me too. I really like the term. Um, I think it brings a sense of optimism and, and hope as we find ourselves... Um, out of or continuing to manage the expectations that come with the pandemic. Um, I think in uh, my, I I run a private practice. I also teach it at two institutions, post-secondary institutions. And I see that, um, again, a wide range of emotions. Um, as the as you know, as we are given more flexibility and and freedom, so folks are traveling again um, a little bit more. As of last summer, I'm seeing a lot more of that on social media when I'm talking with colleagues, friends, and family. Um, so you, you know that brings hope that in in the sense of uh, things are becoming more more normal again because you know you'll remember two years ago when the pandemic had just happened. There's a lot of um, you know, ex- expected non events. so things that um, you know, for example,, uh, we were going to go on a Hawaii trip for for instance, and then that didn't happen because it got canceled, but then there was no end in sight in terms of when is that going to happen again. So it's coming back in terms of people are making plans of uh, let's move forward, let's go book that trip, let's make it happen. um so, and part of that is also people are reevaluating, okay, what's really important to them? Uh, Work plays a tremendous uh, part in in all of our lives. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, the post-traumatic growth is also growth in thinking and thinking about, okay, what's really important to me? Work is important, but there's also other life aspects such as family, um, community volunteering, for example and um, being with friends and socializing, those are the things that are also equally as important, and they contribute tremendously to a sense of our well-being. So part of that that growth in thinking is uh, determining what is the balance, what is the blend uh, that each of us want to have in our lives, and uh, what do we want to prioritize that we didn't prioritize before, and what are some of the new uh, personal core values that have emerged as a result. So uh, I'm having a lot of conversations with people about that. And I'm, I'm sure career development practitioners all over our country, all over the world are talking to their clients about that as well.
1: Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more with Candy Ho. And we're going to dive into more of that career development when we get back.
3: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to what she said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region.
1: Okay, we're back with Candy Ho, who is board chair of CEREC. We're talking about career development. And I would like it if you wouldn't mind explaining, because we were talking earlier and you said that, you know, we're moving from work-life balance to work-life
4: integration. What does that look like? Great question. So work-life integration. So imagine this. Uh, you're working on a laptop. Uh, half the time, the laptop is at your kitchen table where you're you're also eating and socializing. And half the time, maybe you're working at a cafe because you want to get some space um, from your, your wonderful, amazing family members and really dive deep into work. Uh, the idea of um, integration is thinking about um, how, how work comes in, plays a role in different various aspects of, of your life. And the idea that perhaps 9 to 5, working 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, no longer exists in the post-pandemic world. Uh, it might still apply for for some, uh, but for roles that that demand that could have a little bit more flexibility. So myself as a faculty member, uh, for instance, uh, I I'm I'm working when my son is at school because it gives me the most time and most amount of focus and concentration. And whereas he's back at back from school at three o'clock, I'm taking a break, I'm spending time with him. But part of this work life integration is you having the agency. Um, You're trusted with making decisions on how to best live your life and making decisions, not just about work, but about all of your non-work aspects and still get the work done at the end of the day and still being able to do all the fun things and manage everything that is part of your life.
1: Yeah, it feels like there's been a shift through the pandemic from this sort of hustle and grind mentality to prioritizing our wellness and our happiness and, you know, that whole, uh, you know, Uh, work to live, not live to work uh, idea. Would you agree with that?
4: Yeah, I'm seeing, definitely seeing a lot more. And it's popping up in my my conversations in my circle as well. I think people want more. People deserve more. Um, And, you know, work is only one aspect. And, you know, you see all of these studies where they they interview people that are at the end of their lives thinking about what is the one thing that you regret not doing it's never about work it's always about you know i i wish i had um cultivated better relationships with people in my life i wish i had repair uh certain relationships so it goes back to um you know your again your family and friends uh your social circles how do you make a difference in other people's lives and being uh, thoughtful, being generous and, and being kind. Um, again, work, not, that's not to say that, you know, work gives us tremendous satisfaction. Um, and, you know, we form meaningful relationships with colleagues at work as well, but at the end of the day, um, it's balancing between relationships, um, and, you know, what, what you're hoping to contribute and put out there in the world, um, through your, your work, your being, and your thinking.
1: Can you tell me then how people can access career development education and resources through CERIC and what kind of support they can expect to receive from you?
4: First, I'll uh, start by promoting our website, which is C-E-R-I-C. C-A-C-E-R-I-C. Um, Please take the time to look at our website. It's got a ton of resources, not just for career development practitioners, but um, We've got, you know, if you look at our resources website, we've taken uh, a lot of time and effort to design guides from uh, how to help uh, early childhood. How do you help kids have career conversations and think about their career development? So the question that we stop asking is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because when you're a five-year-old, you don't have a lot of understanding about career development, but asking things like, what are you passionate about? Um, how do you want to contribute to the world and how do you want to make a difference? And having those broader conversations and um the, the resources generally are targeted uh to the idea that career is a career development is a lifelong endeavor. So, you know, it doesn't stop when we find our first job. It doesn't stop when we graduate from high school or university. It's ongoing. Um, and so as part of our day-to-day work as career development practitioners, we work with um, you know, young kids to People that are close to retirement and thinking about that life design, what happens after? So, we've got resources for all of the, the life stages. So, please do check us out. And of course, I wanted to share that uh, we are a community of career development practitioners um, that are really passionate about helping people with their careers. In fact, at the end of this month, um, you know, over a thousand of us are gathering in person. Um, And more so more online, too, at our annual Connexus Conference, which is our National Career Development Conference in Ottawa, uh, where we talk about these important things. And and you bet, certainly things like, um, you know, post-traumatic growth and how are we going to come out of uh, our pandemic? Those are topics that are coming out. So go talk to a career development practitioners who are trained, um, professional, who can help you. Uh, tackle and scaffold some of the, the concerns and career and life design issues you're having.
1: All right. That's incredible. I love all of this. So, um, one more time, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just uh, mention the website and any social channels where people can find out more.
4: Uh, the, uh, so, seric.ca, C E R I C.ca is our website. Um, our, we are on Twitter, we are on LinkedIn, uh, we are on Facebook. So, all of that wonderful information is all on our website
1: incredible. And I'm going to put all this information in the liner notes when it goes out on podcasts. Candy, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. People really, really need to embrace their post-traumatic growth right now. So thank you for joining me.
4: Thanks, Candice. Have a wonderful day.
1: It's another full week in entertainment, and Ann Brody is here to give us the lowdown. So let's jump right in. What are we talking about this week, Ann?
5: Got a lot of great, great, great stuff this week, believe it or not, for early January. Starting with Bill Nye, who's getting all kinds of acclaim for his performance in Living. He plays a, a staid, uptight, reliable um, bank worker who who actually improves the people around him just by being his dignified self. Well, his wife dies, and a couple of years later, he reckons he hasn't had a life, so he just doesn't show up to work. Um, and they're concerned, they don't call the police, but he takes himself down to Brighton and has a tries to live a life. So a young fella meets him in a, in a pub. They go out disco dancing. They have a great time. And this guy is kind of melting and becoming human again. Um, and one of the girls that he works with is concerned, a very, very young girl. There's no romantic interest, but she, she gets in touch with him and they go around London and have fun. He's just found out he has six months to live. So this is why he feels the need to live a life it's a good lesson to all of us not to get so caught up in our things that we don't live. So I'm telling you, I loved this film, Living, and it's in theatres. Um, don't miss it.
1: All right. Timely reminder for everybody. How about After Sun?
5: Yes. That film won, um, swept our Toronto Film Critics Association Awards. Uh it's a very effective. Believe it or not, it's the first feature from Charlotte Wells. First feature. Um, and it concerns a father, young father and his daughter who go to Tenerife from England, for, from Scotland for a holiday. And they bond. Lovely scenes between the two of them. And it's intercut with some really strange things that happen. Some odd remarks that are made and a phone call uh, to his uh, ex-wife. He said he loves her and his daughter questions her why he said that when he gets off the phone. So there's all sorts of strange little undercurrents that kind of disturb you, but you don't really know what it means. And so it goes along. They're having fun and you're thinking, well, OK, they're having fun. Now what? And then in a short time, a mule kicks you in the stomach. It is so powerful. Just. A masterpiece of a, of an emotional buildup. Um, and I would highly recommend it. It's got everything.
1: Is it in theaters, Anne?
5: It's in theaters, yes.
1: All right. Next up, we've got a documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust.
5: Yeah, this is from Ken Burns. And his narrator, Muse, Peter Coyote narrates it. Oh, I was absolutely shocked to the core watching this. It was a, It's a historical documentary on anti-Semitism in the U.S. Um, and how presidents came out and actually said, you know, we don't want Jews here. And of course, there was this huge wave from uh, Eastern Europe of Jews uh, coming up to the Nazi whole thing um, and how they were prevented from coming in and how many lives it cost. Uh, I mean, it's particularly, it's scathing, it's shameful, and you can hardly believe that that happened in the USA, but it kind of... uh, reflects a little bit of what's happening now. Um it's on CBC and CBC Gem, And and that too, I mean, if you're ready for a shot
1: go there. Okay. Uh I really like the focus of this next one. Cinema's first nasty women. You got it. And this collective of female filmmakers gave it that title
5: um based on Donald Trump's comment about Hillary Clinton, who's a feminist. So They went back to the silent films from literally around uh, North America and Europe uh, and the silent era and gathered up all these fantastic female talents, comedians, acrobats, actors, writers, directors who did feminist works. In other words, they rejected the patriarchy. There was gender blurring. They rejected the kitchen. They had fun. They exploded things they were like you know again all these 99 short films on this four uh cd doc uh compilation plus they give you a fantastic book that goes along with it and you learn a lot about some of these actresses whose names you might have heard in the of past and says who they were why they were suppressed and why you should see them now and it provides stuff that has never been seen. These girls spent years putting this together, finding, you know, going through dusty old archives, finding these brave, wonderful women who who did not accept the status quo. So cinema's first nasty women.
1: I love it. Bring on more nasty women. We need more. All right. Uh, we want to give a we want to end today's segment. You want to give a little shout out here to Sarah Polly,
5: yeah. Sarah Pauly's, uh women talking has just captivated everybody. um. It didn't win anything in the TFCA awards, it's a shame. Um, and, but I would like to urge everyone to go out and see it at your first opportunity. It's open uh, in a very limited way now, and it opens up later on at the end of the month. But Sarah Polly has really done something amazing with uh, Miriam Too's book. For instance, she get instead of a male narrator, she gives a female narrator. So it's just, and it's just a beautiful ensemble. So women talking,
1: don't miss it. All right. Amazing. And thanks so much. And uh, you'll be back next week with more. I'll be back next week. See you. Have a good one. For years, nurses across the country have been sounding the alarm about the impact that staffing shortages are having on patient care. Yet, those warning calls have continually gone unanswered. Ontario, in particular, is facing a full-blown healthcare crisis and nurses have reached a breaking point. To add insult to injury, internal documents by the Ministry of Health were released showing the Ontario government's acknowledgement that passing Bill 124 would worsen the province's healthcare staffing crisis. The documents state that although nurses are not leaving the profession completely, they are more likely to abandon frontline positions with wages and staffing shortages cited as main drivers. Deanne Martin, Chief Executive Officer of the Registered Practical Nurses Association of Ontario, known as WE-RPN, joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to What She Said. Thanks so much for having me again. Uh, I was gobsmacked by this news. I can't imagine how you must have felt. But for those listening who are not sure what Bill twenty four 124 is, could you give us sort of a quick breakdown on that?
2: Yes. So the um, the Bill 124 limits the ability of the unions representing nursing uh, to negotiate wages above a 1% increase each year. And um, keeping in mind that nurses' uh, situation is that most of their negotiations go to arbitration, um, there is no way for nurses in Ontario to. Due to legislation uh, to strike, like we're seeing in the UK and um, uh, New York City right now, so nurses really rely on a process of negotiation and arbitration to land on wages that are uh, agreed upon as fair for the job that they do.
1: And Bill One Twenty Four, just to sort of expand on that, was ruled unconstitutional uh, by a judge. The Ford government is now seeking to overturn that, and basically what is it's it's saying is that you would get a
2: one per it would be capped at a one percent increase per year is that right 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 yeah. so- uh, so with that um, with that decision, we had ample evidence, in my opinion, that uh, the legislation was impacting um, ultimately patients who are the, the most impacted people related to this, and that the Supreme, or sorry, the Superior Court decision uh, from Ontario would give the government a graceful way to move out of that legislation and into processes that would uh, work to keep nurses who are already in the system here, within the system, working um, full-time as much as possible in, in committed roles um, uh, with the patients that they care for.
1: So the news came out this week then that the government was fully aware of the impact that Bill 124 would have. How did you feel when you first saw that news?
2: Um a little piece of me was somewhat relieved because one of my jobs is to explain to the government um, the experiences of nurses, what nurses need, and those sorts of things. And As I'm explaining to uh, the government now for a year that, or more, that nurses are experiencing moral distress uh, where they go home each day knowing that they did not take good care of their patients that day. and that strikes at the heart of nurses, um, nurses who know that they, um, did the work of of two nurses because most nursing units are substantially short, and that they know exactly what what uh, impact that had on patients. Nurses from emerge who who tell us that, um, they see the patients in the waiting room getting sicker and their hearts break. There's no room to take them to. There's no one to see them. All for um, a pay that has over the years been now become quite inadequate. So double the work um, without much increase in pay, a 1% per year. And um, I really felt, am I not Am I inadequately explaining what's going on? Am, we have surveys. We have evidence that forty-seven percent of RPNs are considering leaving the profession. That's that's a very frightening number. Um, maybe I'm not doing my job. But when I heard that that document uh, had been, um, you know, revealed, I thought, oh, they they got our message right away. They understood our message right away and made a decision um, based, uh, even with that information uh, available to them. So it's a little
1: bit shocking. I mean, even in today's political climate, it's a little bit shocking to know that they know the truth. It's laid out before them, yet they're deliberately choosing uh,
2: to ignore it. So what is the path forward from here now? Uh, To me, the path forward is pretty simple. I, I can't imagine the appeal. Uh, the, the, the law was was struck down as in con, uh, constitution, unconstitutional. And um, the path forward is pretty clear. Um, the appeal costs money, uh, taxpayer money, to pay for this appeal. And when that All of that funding should be going towards finding ways to keep the nurses we already have. We brought in thousands of nurses last year, thousands uh, of international-educated nurses, uh, graduated thousands of nurses, and yet the increase in actual nurses in the province was very small. So um, it just doesn't make much sense. All of the money that we're spending, if out the other end, we are going to make no improvement because we are not addressing the needs of the nurses who are already here. What needs to happen is that appeal needs to be dropped. Wages need to be negotiated for um, for nurses that are fair. Um, we are negotiating as a province wages with others that are deserved and fair with police officers and and, and PSWs in Ontario are making um, greater wages, but nurses are very much held to where they are. This does target women.
1: Uh, a lot because women are largely in these professions, Bill 124, right?
2: Yeah, you know, um I've been a nurse for 43 years and and uh, it's a knowledge-based educated profession and I've been told throughout my career um that I should be happy just to serve uh that I had a I was responding to a calling um when in reality I, I am a profession. I am a member of a profession uh, just like any other profession and um it's been even later in my life that I've really started to realize the degree to which being part of a highly knowledgeable and educated profession that is primarily female is um, a situation that has a lot of hidden um, implications that impact or um, hold us back from being fully recognized as the profession that we are. So, people listening right now um, who are frustrated by this as well uh,
1: want to help, I'm sure. But we don't have an election for uh, at least three right. more years here. What can we do in the meantime to help support
2: WRPN? I think the first thing that people need to recognize is that nurses are not allowed to speak about what happens to patients in their care. So, when you hear nurses talking about um, the, the impact on them working shorthanded, uh, no breaks, what they're saying to you is no care is happening to some people. So, first of all, as a society, we have to recognize that our healthcare system um, should be giving us much more safety and security about that. And then we should be talking to our elected officials and saying, you know, this, this group of people, and in fact, all um, people who provide care within the healthcare system, have to have access to adequate wages and uh, treatment that will retain them within the system. So reach out to your MPP, uh, write letters. Yep. And also your premier, your premier and your minister of health, uh, uh, if they're not your particular MPP, also also those um, people as well, because they have a role to play to ensure that you are well cared for and that you ha- have access to everything you need when you go into a hospital. And keep in mind the fact about that nurses cannot speak about where um, care has been uh, has broken their hearts.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we, we, I think we can connect the dots. Uh, my listeners are intelligent and uh, on top of things. So I'm sure they're connecting the dots here and understand that connection there. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I'm so sorry this has uh, come forward. But I think it's going to work in your favor. Uh, It's pretty hard for the Ontario government to continue with this appeal when it is laid right out that they are aware of the impact of Bill 124. So uh, let's hope that this turns the tide. Uh, Diane, thank you so much for joining me today. I want people to keep, uh, keep on top of what you're sharing. So is there somewhere they can go?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, There is a uh, our website, we put keep our news up to date on there. And in fact, on our website, there is an open letter to the premier, which you're welcome to see and forward with your own comments. Excellent. I will
1: add that into the podcast notes for when this goes live on podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
1: If you're not worried about your finances right now, I have a question. Will you adopt me? For everyone else, it's time to get our game face on and tackle 2023's biggest concern head-on. Stephanie Chabot runs the Finance Diaries to help make finance topics more bite-sized, understandable, and less scary. Stephanie believes that by being able to openly discuss finance topics, we can understand them better, avoid mistakes others have made, feel more empowered, and make better decisions. She joins me now with some advice for those worried about the impact a recession may have on them and their families this year. Welcome back to the show, Stephanie.
6: Thanks so much for having me back. I'm glad to be here.
1: So I know you're always chatting with people. What are the biggest concerns and worries you're seeing?
6: One of the biggest things we've been hearing about is if we're in a recession, if a recession's coming, and what exactly are the impacts of that. And it makes a lot of people worried about jobs and inflation and mortgage interest rates and all that stuff. So, all of that is a big concern that is definitely at the forefront of everyone's mind right now.
1: And so, immediately when these things start to happen, we, we, go into a little bit of panic mode what should we do and where should we put our money and should we pull it out of savings and all of those things so maybe let's just start with what's the first thing we should be doing
6: it's funny that actually the the first thing that we should be doing is something that we should always be doing whether there's fear of a recession or not is that we should be keeping our emergency fund fully stocked and ready to go an emergency fund for the typical person, is three to six months worth of expenses. And this depends, this figure can depend on whether you're a sole provider for the family, if you're on your own, all kinds of different things. Uh, Having that stocked and ready for emergencies, which isn't just recessions and losing your job, um, is really a good thing to start with.
1: And it's funny, though, because I feel like people do the opposite. As soon as something like this happens, the first thing to suffer is that savings account.
6: Yeah, it's definitely something that that we have to consider having ready to go. Um, If you have an emergency, an emergency can really be anything. It's not just losing your job. It's having to care for an elderly parent or taking a pay cut, all kinds of different things. And it is hard to save, but it is a time that if a recession is is potentially on the horizon, that you should be looking into uh, things like reducing your spending. So maybe anything that you don't, necessarily need that extra latte every day it could really add up i mean not tremendously but still and then also on top of that is just delaying large purchases so if you find your tv or your computer are getting a bit old and outdated maybe not the best time to to be spending money on that that'll also help you increase your savings
1: do you have thoughts on people considering getting into the housing market this year
6: yeah, that's a very interesting topic. There are, there's a lot of speculation and it, in, from what I've seen, it seems like we're still going to be having some more housing market um, interest rate hikes. So that does mean that it will be expensive to, to borrow money. And on top of that, once again, Canada has announced a very ambitious immigration plans so that does put a further strain on the housing market because that means that demand is going to stay very high as more and more people come to canada so if this is the year that you want to be getting into the housing market try to save as aggressively as possible get a really solid down payment Um, like i said reduce your spending as much as possible because all those things that you're paying for like your car uh, any subscription services all kinds of things like that get factored into what you can afford to borrow and that is something that we can't really tell where the housing markets going to be but it does look like it's going to remain strong going into 2023
1: what about those of us and present company included that are carrying debt into the new year
6: Yeah, so debt is a very common thing to have. And one of the things that we want to do is to try to reduce the amount of bad debt that we have. Good debt is something like, uh, well, good debt. Good debt is something like if you have a a mortgage, maybe on a rental property or something like that, that's helping you make more money. But consumer debt, payday loans, those kinds of things, we really want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. The way that you can pay it back. There are a few different ways, but one of the main ways that is recommended by financial professionals is to address what's the highest interest rates first. And that way you can get those out of the way. Your student loans might have a high interest rate, but your credit card loans are probably a lot higher. So if you can address them as aggressively as possible, this will also help you feel better, not only going into a potential year of a recession, but just in general, it's nice to not have that looing overhead.
1: And I feel like a lot of people are probably sitting here right now too embarrassed to talk about their financial situation. What would you say to them?
6: I think that it's it's like riding a bike. The first little bit is the hardest. And then once you get into it, like you really get into it. I don't think that finances should ever be embarrassing to talk about. I think it's more embarrassing to spend your life not talking about them and then not knowing all the things that you could have done. Every day I'm still learning new things and it's just a constant journey of learning. So that first step, definitely the most uncomfortable step is bringing up money for the first time, maybe in a conversation or reaching out to a financial expert for help. But I promise you, it definitely gets better after that first initial step.
1: All right. Well, you are always keeping it very real on your social channels and speaking about finances and in just a very comforting tone, I think. So I want people to be able to connect with you and just keep up on top of all of the tips you share. Where can they do that?
6: I have a few different platforms. My main one is definitely my Instagram where you can find me at The Finance Diaries. I also have a podcast of my own as well, which is under the same name. And I'm sometimes popping on to TikTok as well.
1: All right, incredible. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today.
6: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure once
1: again. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 1059 The Region. Please
0: hold on